0: amen last week we began a new series which is a study uh, through the book of Ephesians and as we go through this book our focus is going to be on the two major themes here in Ephesians which are identity and mission so two major themes here identity and mission And that's why the title we've given to this series is Who Are You and What Are You Doing Here? The first is a question of identity. Who are you? And the second is a question of mission. What are you doing here? What is God's purpose with which he's put you here at this time on earth in the place where you are? As we got into Ephesians last week, we talked about this this image of post-it notes, right? This image of post-it notes that throughout our lives, All of us are asking the question, Who am I? And we try to give ourselves, we try to find our identity in many things, and we put labels on ourselves. Like post it notes, right? We say, I am this. I am that. We talked about that last week. And at the same time, we have other people placing labels on us as well, telling us who they say that we are. They say all kinds of things. It's like, slap, you are pretty. You are athletic, you are smart, you're successful. Or on the other hand, maybe they say you are ugly, you're a failure, you're an idiot. Maybe they say you're talented, maybe they say you're friendly, maybe they say you're antisocial. And all of these things, all these labels that people slap on us and put on us, like post-it notes trying to define who we are, they very much affect our sense of identity, who we believe that we are. So the biblical truth that we need to know, the life-changing biblical truth of God's word is this. Much more important than who you think you are and more important than who other people say that you are is who God declares that you are. I'll say that again. More important than who you think you are or who other people say that you are, is who God declares that you are. And God's word has a whole lot to say about who you are. And that is our focus here in this first part of Ephesians. Who does God say that you are? What is your identity according to him? You know, what's interesting in our society today and, and increasingly it's true of Christians as well, is that when it comes to our understanding of God, right, when it comes to questions of God, we still tend to go to the Bible and ask, what does it say about God? Who is he? But when it comes to questions about ourselves and our identity and who we are, increasingly the tendency is not to go to scripture, but to go to social sciences, right? Like psychology or anthropology or sociology to look for the answers to our questions of identity there. You know, we ask the questions of these things. Who am I? Tell me who I am. And they say, well, you need to look at your birth order. Are you the firstborn? Are you the middle child? Are you the baby in the family? That's why you do that, right? And are, are you an introvert or an extrovert? What's my personality type? We go to Myers-Briggs, right? Am I a feeler? Am I a thinker? Am I a type A alpha female? Am I a type D beta male? And, and we accumulate all these post-it notes right these labels that get slapped on us we hand over so much of our identity and the the understanding of who we are and who we are supposed to be to these things rather than coming to the scriptures but here's the thing all of those those things I mentioned just a second ago they're all good for for this they're good for categorizing and explaining patterns of behavior but here's what they're incapable of doing they're incapable of defining who you are, right? Because what the social sciences do is that they give you an identity based on, number one, things that have happened to you, and number two, things that you do, right? But surely, certainly, we are more, who we are is more than just what we do or what has been done to us, right? So again, these, these labels get put on us, but, but they're all about what we do and what has been done to us, they don't get to the core, they don't get to the root of who we are. The best place, though, to start for forming our identity is not with ourselves or with other people, but it's with God. That we come to the scripture and we say, who is God and who am I in relation to him? Who does he say that I am? And the challenge for us today as we gather and we look at God's word, especially now as it's talking about who we are, our identity, the challenge for us is that we want to remove, we need to remove all of these post-it notes that have been placed on us. All these labels that we've put on ourselves and that other people have put on us. We need to strip them all away. Stop letting those things define your sense of identity. And what we need to do is put new post-it notes on ourselves. New labels, which are this, which are who God declares that you are. That's what you need to put on yourself. And we need to build our sense of identity on that. And so once, what happens is once you strip away all these labels, right, all these post-it notes that people have placed on you, that you've placed on yourself, and you say, okay, God, now you tell me who I am. You build, you give me my sense of identity. He begins to put new labels on you. He says, okay, label number one, slap. You were created You were created. You were created by God lovingly in his image with care. Fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Another one, slap. You are known by God. He knit you together in your mother's womb and he knows everything about you. He knows you better than you even know yourself. In fact, he even knows how many hairs are on your head. Which is a number that changes every day in my case actually but uh, he slaps another one on you and says you are loved another one you are cared for and these labels he puts on all people right they apply to everybody but then what happens more labels get put on right slap you're broken right this label you are broken Another one, you are a sinner, you are lost. The the other labels still apply, right? You're still loved, you're still cared for, you're still known by God, but yet you are also lost and broken because of sin. But here's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is Jesus Christ. The hope of the gospel is Jesus Christ, and the Bible says that if anyone is in sin, Christ. That's such an important statement for what we're talking about today. If anyone is in Christ, they are what? They're a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. When you put your faith in Christ, you receive a new life. That's why we call it, that's why the Bible calls it being born again. And along with that new life comes a new identity. You are now in Christ. And you receive a new identity. And when you're in Christ, here's what happens. God removes some of those labels that were on you, even that he put on you up until that point because it was true of you. He removes that label that says sinner and he replaces it with one that says saint. He removes the label that says broken and he replaces it with one that says redeemed. And he gives you a whole bunch of other labels as well. And that's what we're going to be studying about here in Ephesians. Those, my friends, those are your identity. Those labels that God gives you, that is your true identity. Build your sense of identity on that. Last week we looked at the first of these three labels, post-it notes that God puts on us declaring who we are in Christ. We saw that we are called You are a saint and you are blessed. You are called, you're a saint, you are blessed. Today we're gonna continue in Ephesians chapter one from verse three. And as we do, we're gonna be collecting more of these post-it notes and letting God stick labels on us to tell us who we really are in Christ, what our true identity is. The first thing we see as we get in here in verse three, here's what we see in our text today. Number one, you are rich. This is your identity in Christ. You are rich. It says this in chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What we have here from verse 3. Three all the way down to the end of verse 14 in the original Greek this is the longest sentence in the New Testament Paul's kind of a, a rambler he likes commas you know it just keeps going keeps going anyway this is one big long sentence for all you you know if you studied English or lit major or something that that kind of stuff drives you crazy but it's one big long sentence and here's how he begins blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places I don't know if you've ever heard of a woman named Hetty Green but she's quite famous especially out on the East Coast in New York Uh, she is an American icon She lived around the turn of the century in New York City, and she was the first American woman to make a substantial impact on Wall Street. She was a successful businesswoman. She dealt with real estate, she invested in railroads, and she lent money. In fact, she was so wealthy that the city of New York came to Hetty Green, one woman, and asked for loans on a number of occasions. She's a wealthy lady. And although she was a very wealthy woman, what made her most famous, though, was how incredibly stingy she was, right? She was incredibly stingy, and, and her stinginess is legendary, right? They, this, this flyer I have, it's a museum dedicated to the stinginess of this woman, Hedy Green. When, when she died in 1916 at the age of 81 years old, her net worth was around $1 billion, A hundred years ago, she had a billion dollars in net worth. I mean, very wealthy woman, yet her stinginess was legendary. And some of the things that you can read, I mean, there's tons of them on the Internet, but here's a few. She was so stingy that she ate most of her food cold because it cost money to heat her food, right? Uh, She only heated one room of her house in the winter, and she only washed the parts of her clothes which were actually dirty at the moment in order to save money on soap and water. And most famous story about her is that one of her sons had to get his leg amputated once because she would not pay for health insurance and she refused to send him to a normal doctor. Instead, she wanted to save some money so she sent him to a clinic for the poor right? The wealthiest woman in New York City sends her son to a free clinic, and as a result, his leg got so infected that it had to be amputated. We laugh about it now. He didn't think it was that funny, I'm guessing. Uh, And ultimately, she died of a stroke, and and, uh, the caretaker's told that the reason she had the stroke was because she got very angry and worked up with them who were taking care of her because they had used her money to buy her whole milk instead of skim milk, and whole milk is way more expensive. So she got worked up and had a stroke, right? That's how she died. She was extremely rich, but here's the thing. She lived as if she was dirt poor. And this woman, you know what she is for us as Christians? She's a great illustration of this. This is the way that a lot of Christians live today. They have unbelievable wealth and riches at their disposal, at their fingertips, yet they live as if they are poor, as if they have nothing. They have incredible riches in Christ, but they live a spiritually impoverished condition because they don't take advantage of the great spiritual riches that they've been given in him. Here's your identity. You need to know it. You are rich. Every spiritual blessing, it's yours in Christ. It's already been given to you. It's yours. It's at your disposal. Here's what Paul's writing. He's writing this from prison. We mentioned that last week. This is one of Paul's prison epistles, one of the letters that he wrote from prison. And here he is writing from prison. He's completely broke. He's homeless at the the moment. And here's what he says even if my wallet is empty, my heart is full in Christ. My heart is full of joy and peace and hope and every spiritual blessing. How many people in our society would say just the opposite of that? I've got cash in my wallet, but nothing in my heart, right? My heart is empty. My house is full of stuff, so much that it's cluttered, but my heart is void of joy and peace and the things which moth and rust can't destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Here's the truth, friends. You are rich in Christ. You need to know that. You need to build your identity upon that. Don't live like you're poor. In Christ, it's all at your disposal. Life, joy, happiness, love, and all of these things in abundance in Christ. They're found in him and they're at your disposal. So walk in them and dip into that well and drink deep. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 says something similar. It says, his divine power has granted us All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. All things. In Christ, what that means is that we have the tools to cope with every situation that life throws at us. In him, we have the tools to cope with every situation. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. In tough situations, we have the promise that if anyone needs wisdom, let him come to God who freely gives wisdom to those who ask. When we need direction, we have the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit to lead us and guide us into God's will for our lives. Every spiritual blessing, they're ours in Christ. Don't live as a pauper. Dip into that deep well and let your heart and life be full. Let's continue on in verse four. Even as he chose us in him, Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. Here's the next thing about your identity in Christ you are chosen. You are chosen. God chose you. God elected you before the foundation of the world. From eternity past, God picked you that you would be his. He predestined you to adoption as his child. You know, some people get really uncomfortable about this topic of election and predestination. And the the reason it makes them uncomfortable is because they would say, well, you know what? This kind of arise makes rise to some questions in my mind right like like for example if God chose some people to be saved well then does that mean that he didn't choose other people to be saved and of course then there's also the question so if I believe in Jesus do I believe because I am one of the elect or am I one of the elect because I believe those are good questions, and, uh, and they're questions that Christians have been asking and debating for at least 1,500 years now. And the reason why there's still disagreement, why there's still not full consensus on these things is, is partly because of this. The Bible doesn't answer the questions that we're asking in the way that we're asking them. It just tells us the facts right? The Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of all people, that every person must make a choice as to whether or not they will put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or not, right? And and it says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. On the other hand, the Bible tells us that we who believe have been chosen by God before the foundation of the earth, before we were ever born. D.L. Moody, the evangelist, he once said, "I'm I'm so glad that God chose me before I was born because I don't think he would have chosen me if he had seen me live for a little while. The point is that the Bible teaches that God chose you. And you, at the same time, you must also choose God. Both. God chose you and you must choose him. Sometimes people ask me, Nick, do you believe in election and predestination? My answer is, well of course I do, don't you? Because you should, because guess what? It's right here in black and white. Are you gonna argue with this? This is what God said, right? You're gonna go in there and say, well, you know when it says predestination, that doesn't actually mean predestination. I've been taking a class in Greek, right? So I've been learning Greek and all this stuff. So I actually went in just to make sure, what does this word mean? I did a word study and guess what it means? He chose beforehand, pre chose. He predestined, predetermined. If God says that he chose me before the foundation of the world, that he predestined me to adoption as a son, I'm not going to argue with him. I- I'm happy to let him speak for himself and tell me how it all went down, right? I'm not going to tell him, no, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Well, he says, yes, you did choose me. But guess what? I chose you first, before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born, so who wins? I win. That's what God says. Yeah, you did choose me, but I still chose you first, right? Instead of arguing with him, I am very content to say, thank you, Lord, for choosing me. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for choosing me. That was grace, because I'll tell you what, I certainly have not deserved it. I certainly have not deserved to be chosen. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose for my life even before I was born. You're not just figuring things out as you go along. You have a plan and a purpose for my life. Thank you, Lord, because I never get chosen for anything, right, thank you, Lord, for choosing me. This doctrine of election, that God chose you in Christ that you would be his. That isn't something that should bother you. That is something that should warm your heart, right? That is something that should be a great truth that you hold on to and delight in, that God chose me. Not because of anything I've done, but just because of his love. Seriously though, I never get picked for anything, right? So for me, doctrine of election is like awesome, right? I have this cousin though, she lives in California and she's one of these people, you probably know somebody like this, she like gets picked for everything. I could be in like a boy scout raffle and there's only two of us who bought tickets, I'm not gonna win, I already know, right? But my cousin, she lives in in San Diego and, and about a month ago she went up to LA just to attend, right, just to be part of a filming of The Price is Right. So there she is in the audience, you know, doing her thing, shouting. And of course, she gets picked out of the audience. Out of a couple thousand people, my cousin gets picked. She goes to the showcase showdown, and she wins, right? She won like a trip to Italy and, I don't know, like some new furniture or something. But it was just on TV the other day. But... Uh, My cousin, the same cousin, she used to be a fan of the Ellen Show. So, about eight or nine years ago, she took a trip to Chicago just to, uh, you know, watch a live filming of the Ellen Show. And of course, she got picked, right? She gets picked to go up on stage and do this dance competition with Ellen, and she wins, right? So I went to my cousin's house, you know, many years ago, and she she lived in this tiny, dumpy apartment in East San Diego, but she had this massive TV that she had won from being on the Ellen Show. Took up like half her apartment. And then, just like even more recently, she told me that she went to see Tony Robbins, right? This is my cousin. She's into Tony Robbins. And and out of like 10,000 people in this arena in Los Angeles, she got picked to go up on stage and walk across hot coals. Which, on the other hand, might not be as great of a thing, right? Out of 10,000 people, she's probably the only one raising her hand. But anyway... (laughs) that's my cousin. For her, I think that playing the lottery would just be like a wise investment because she's probably going to win. That's not true of me, and it's probably not true of most people. So let me tell you, for me, the doctrine of election is very dear to my heart. I say, thank you, God, for choosing me. I never get chosen for anything. Maybe you'd say, so wait a minute, Nick. Let me just clarify something with you here. Do you believe that any person, anybody, some guy on the street right now, anybody, they could be saved just by simply believing in Jesus. If I go out and find some guy on the street and I say, hey, you want to be saved? And he says, yeah. I say, I believe in Jesus. And he says, okay. And then, is he saved? Yes. Anybody who wants to believe in Jesus, can they be saved? Yes, of course I believe that. Anybody. All they got to do is believe in Jesus. Well then, Well, then, you know, then how does it work? Did I choose God or did God choose me? My answer is yes. That's exactly how it happened. You got it right now. Write that down. So imagine it like this. This is how I kind of imagine it. It's as if when a person makes a decision of their own volition to put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's as if they walk through a door and on that door is written, anyone, let anyone come who wants to come. Let anyone come who is thirsty and drink, right? Revelation 22 says that. But then once you walk through the door and you're on the other side, you turn around and you look back at the door and you know what it says? You didn't choose me, I chose you. Before the foundation of the world, I appointed you to bear fruit. Sometimes people ask me, okay Nick, so what is your theological position? Are you a Calvinist? Or are you an Armenian? You know what my theological position is? My theological position is the Bible. If it says it, I believe it. So when it says that he elected me, I believe it. When it says that he predestined me, I believe it. I'm a Christian. That's my theological position, the Bible. Instead of trying to put a label on me and put labels on each other, why don't we discuss the issues, right? Sometimes labels are helpful, but many times they're not. Although, you know, sometimes they are, but many times they're not. Many times, though, labels just kind of create a clan mentality, right? And they create unnecessary walls between believers. Some people are like really into labels, right? You talk to them and you're like, So, what are you? Are you a Christian? Well,. I guess you could say I'm a Christian, but I like to think of myself as kind of like a a third wave, neo-orthodox, reformed, Anglican, semi-Pelagian, charismatic, Wesleyan with bipolar tendencies, right? (laughs) You know, one of the things that I love at Whitefields, and really one of the things that I think is the beauty of Whitefields, one thing that attracted me to this church myself, is that it's a community church. And here, our identity is we're Christians right we're Christians and we have people who attend this church from pretty much every different background that you could possibly imagine every denominational background every walk of life and we come together here as Christians I think that's beautiful as brothers and sisters in Christ not as semi-pelagian charismatic neo wesleyans as Christians right are you saying that's what we are, Nick? No, that's not what I'm saying. But uh, that's our identity As at Whitefields. We are Christians. That's our number one primary identity. And what we do is we say, let's get back to the basics and let's be Christians together. Let's, let's get back to the simple powerful basics of what God designed church to be about let's worship God let's study the Bible let's take communion let's love each other let's teach the kids let's serve each other and let's reach out to our city and the world with the gospel as the body of Christ because we're Christians I love that I love that that that's what Whitefields is about and I'll tell you what as a person I want my identity to be focused on the labels which God gives me in Christ. I don't want to add a bunch of unnecessary ones I want my life to be focused on the labels that God gives me in Christ so who are you you are chosen that's a great truth let's read on from verse 7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth that's god's plan to bring all things together in him in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined there's that p word again according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is your identity? Here's one more, another label that God puts on you. You are redeemed. This is your identity. You are redeemed. You know what to redeem means in this sense? It means to purchase freedom. To redeem means to purchase freedom. Uh, In the Roman Empire, according to some estimates, there were upwards of 60 million slaves. They were bringing them from all over the place. 60 million slaves. And they were treated like furniture, right? Like today, you have a washing machine or a dishwasher. You would just have slaves. Everybody had them. But, But if somebody wanted to, they could purchase a slave and then set them free. That's the picture of redemption. And that's the image that Paul, the apostle, is using here when he uses this word redeem. That is what Jesus did for you. He purchased your freedom. He paid the price for your freedom. You were a slave. You were held in hostage by sin and death and vain things. But Jesus redeemed us by giving his life in exchange for our life. He purchased our freedom. Not only are you redeemed, but another label, slap, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, all your sins are forgiven. And God's word says that if we have been forgiven in this way by God, then we must also forgive those who sin against us. In fact, Jesus even went so far as to say something very radical. The only reason I dare say it is because he said it. He said this, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that is pretty serious. That's pretty heavy, right? If to redeem someone means to purchase their freedom, then to forgive someone means that you set them free. You set someone free who is indebted to you. You let them go. You release them. That is what God has done for you in Christ. He has released you from your debt. Maybe you remember that Jesus told a parable once. He told a parable about a man who owed a great debt to the king and the king was checking his books and calling in his debts and the the man came forward and said, King, I have no way to pay this off if you would just be so merciful and gracious to me as to forgive me of my debt. And the king said, Okay, you're forgiven. I forgive you. I release you from your debt. But then what happened? That same man, he went to another guy who owed him the equivalent of five, ten dollars. And he said, You can't pay me what you owe me? Well, then I'm going to have you put in jail. And he had him locked up. And we read that the king when he found out about what this man had done, he was very incensed, right? Because this man had received grace and forgiveness, but yet he was withholding it from others. And the point of the story is this, that we, as people who have been forgiven and have received grace, we have no right to withhold forgiveness and grace from others. We as Christians... We should be the quickest to forgive. We should be the most gracious people because God has forgiven us and he has been gracious to us in Christ. But here's the thing I want you to notice. Now look over that text and I'm going to point out a few things to you. If you look through this text today, here's what I want you to see. The overarching theme, what is the overarching theme of these verses that we read today? Of this section number one it is who are we in Christ and number two though and this is important is that God has a plan and a purpose and he is actively and sovereignly working out those plans and purposes in the lives of his children check this out in verse 4 it says that he chose us in verse 5 he predestined us according to the purpose of his will verse 9 according to his purpose God has a purpose Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of the time. Verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay? What's the theme? The theme is God has a plan, God has a purpose, God is sovereign, and he is working out his will here in the world and even in our lives individually. Consider again with me where this is coming from where is this coming from remember paul is writing from prison and what is he writing about number one he's writing about how important it is that we who are believers that we have our identity secure in christ and number two he's writing about the sovereignty of god the purposes and the plans of god paul is writing this letter to the church in ephesus The church in Ephesus, this is a church that Paul started. He went there on his third missionary journey. He started this church, and he lived in this town for longer than he lived in any other town during his missionary journeys. Roughly three years he spends in Ephesus. He taught them. He he planted the church. He taught them. He pastored them for years. Now, try to put yourselves in their shoes. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the Ephesians receiving this letter, right? This man, Paul, he's their pastor. This is the man who counseled them and married them and dedicated their kids and taught them the Bible and prayed for them and he pastored them for years and now he's in prison, right? This man who's so dear to their hearts, who, who they've been closely knit with, now he's in prison and they get this letter from Paul, their pastor, What is he going to say? And they begin to read the letter, and here's how it begins. Friends, brothers and sisters, you have to have your identity in Christ. You have to have your identity secure in Christ. That's the first thing he wants to tell them. Think about this. If Paul's identity had been wrapped up in anything else, if he had been finding his identity in his persona or his position or public opinion about him, then he would have been crushed by this. Because right now public opinion is, you know, in the tank because he is in prison, right? He's lost his position as pastor and apostle. Now he's just sitting in jail doing nothing. His persona is gone. So when he loses that, will he be crushed? Like so many people are when they lose that thing which they built their identity upon. But this is what Paul tells them. I'm not losing heart and here's why. Guys, we who are believers, we need to know who we are in Christ. That needs to be so secure, right? If you build your identity on anything else, it will fail you. We need to know who we are in Christ, and we need to build our identity on the solid rock of who we are in Christ, because in Christ, we have everything we need. And the next thing that Pastor Paul tells these people is, his dearly beloved brothers and sisters and congregants, what does he tell them? He says, guys, you need to know this too. You need to know that God is sovereign. God has plans and purposes and he's in control. And as these people read this, you know, they're realizing, oh, That's right, man. God is sovereign. Paul's in prison, but you know, it's not like God's in a conundrum, unsure of what his next move should be. No, God has plans and purposes. He's sovereign. And if Paul's in prison, then God must have a plan and a purpose with it. In other words, here's the deal. Paul is not crushed by his circumstances, even though they're incredibly difficult, because he has not lost sight of who he is in Christ and the fact of God's sovereignty. See, election and predestination, the sovereignty of God, these are topics for discussion within the family. You know what I'm saying? Like in your family, there are topics that you talk about within the family and topics that you talk about outside of the family. Paul is writing within the family. Brothers and sisters, he's not writing to evangelize people who are not yet believers. And when we talk to people outside of the family of God, then we're not going to be talking about election, and predestination. That's not going to be the topic that we want to really emphasize to them. It's going to be the gospel, that they need to put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved and, and follow Jesus, right? But here, within the family, with brothers and sisters, we talk about God's sovereignty. We talk about God's election and his purposes and his plans and how amazing it is that he chose us because we weren't looking for him. I don't know how many of you here today would say, "You know, I found God after doing a 5-year study of world religions and you know, going through stuff. You know, I was seeking God and finally I found him." No, I think that most of our stories, they'd be like mine. It'd be like, "I wasn't looking for God. In fact, I was just looking to have a good time, but God came and found me. That's certainly the story of my life, you know. I wasn't pursuing God, but he pursued me. Yes, I chose him, but he definitely chose me when I wasn't looking for him. He sent people into my life who kept telling me about Jesus, even though I wasn't interested in hearing about it. I wasn't wanting them to tell me about Jesus, but they kept doing it anyway. When I was 16 years old, my goal in life was not to become a born-again Christian. My goal in life was to sin and not get caught, right? But God pursued me, and I'm so glad that he did. Think about the Apostle Paul. Is he somebody out there looking for Jesus, searching for Jesus? No, not at all. In fact, his hobby was to lead a group of guys to drag Christians out of their house, beat them up, sometimes kill them one day what happens? Paul's not looking for Jesus but Jesus shows up anyway, right? Hey, I'm here and he knocks him off his horse and he makes Paul go blind and that was the best thing that ever happened to him. Maybe your story is similar to that. Listen, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God has plans and purposes and I even believe that God is so sovereign that he has you here right now in this room today for a purpose okay and whatever is going on in your life whatever circumstance you're facing I want you to know that God has a plan and a purpose God knew before you were ever born that one day you're going to be in this situation and he has a plan and a purpose with it he wants to use it for your good and for his glory now for some of you the situation that you're in The reason it's a bad situation is because you have made bad choices you've done dumb things over and over sometimes right but here's the thing god's sovereignty doesn't mean that your bad choices were his will you know some people are like well i sinned but i guess it was the grace of god because i guess it was the will of god because look what's happening no that's not it that's not what sovereignty is about but it does mean that god knew that you would one day be where you're at right now. And he has a plan for this situation, how it can work out for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. Notice down in verse six, it says this, that God works all things according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. So when people look at our lives, they would look at it and say, wow, God is truly a gracious God. Let me give you some examples Paul says I'm in prison right he's probably thinking I do not know why this has happened to me I've been in a shipwreck people getting bit by snakes and now I'm in prison it's not really fun let me tell you But here's the thing I'm going to choose to do. I'm going to choose to believe that God is sovereign. And even in this circumstance, he must have a a plan and a purpose. And someday I believe that this story will be to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, guess what happens? Paul's in prison in Rome. Not long after this, roughly, you know, a year and a half after writing this letter, what happens? Paul is going to have the opportunity to preach the gospel to the top political leaders in the most influential kingdom or, you know, realm in the world, right? He's going to have the opportunity to preach the gospel to the leaders, the political leaders of Rome, to governors, to kings, and ultimately to Caesar Nero. And guess what? As a result of Paul being in prison, he writes four letters which are now in our Bibles, right? And guess what? While he's in prison, Paul's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. They'd change him out on eight-hour shifts, and Paul has a lot of time to talk to these guys. They can't go anywhere. They can try to run, but they got to take him with them, right? and Paul writes this to in his letter to the Ephesians this is interesting or I'm sorry in Philippians which is another one of his prison epistles Paul writes to Philippians all God's people here as in Rome send you their greetings especially those who belong to Caesar's household now what most scholars agree that this means is that Caesar's guards, these these people who were assigned to watch over Paul during his arrest, who were chained to him for eight hours a day, these people became Christians while they sat in that jail cell and talked with Paul the apostle day after day. And they would be locked in there with him, and Paul would tell them about Jesus. And think about this, once they got saved, when they got converted, from then on, Their eight-hour shift, being chained to Paul, that became a time of fellowship with a brother. And imagine this, that their prisoner became their pastor, right? So here's Paul sitting in this cell writing to these Christians in Philippi, and the guards, you know, they say, hey, make sure you tell them what's up from us, because they're our brothers and sisters. And imagine the stories that these guys would tell, these prison guards, you know, when they meet other Christians. So, well, tell me, how did you get saved? Well... You're not going to believe this, but here's what happened. I was was working in this jail, right? And I got assigned to watch over this, this short Jewish guy, and it turns out he was the Apostle Paul, right? And that's the end of the story. That's how I got saved. Is God sovereign or what? God sent the Apostle Paul from halfway across the world to minister to me personally. I'll tell you what, those guys were very happy about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Does God love me or what? That he would bring this man and he would have him minister to me personally that I might come to know Jesus. Yeah, I think God elected me. From Paul's perspective, he's in jail and life's falling apart. But from God's perspective, he has Paul right where he wants him. God has a plan and a purpose. Paul couldn't see it yet, but in time he would. And the same is true for you. Whatever's going on in your life, you need to know God is sovereign. He has a plan and a purpose. And you, what you need to do, take care of what you need to take care of. You do your part. You do what God has called you to be. You be the person who God's called you to be in that situation. And you can entrust the rest into God's faithful hands and his sovereign plan. I don't know about you, but for me that's extremely comforting extremely encouraging and that is what the doctrine of election and sovereignty that's what it should be so who are you what is your identity in christ here's some labels for you you are rich you are chosen you are redeemed you are forgiven and here's a final one you are part of god's plan let's stand and pray Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty. And Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you have chosen us, Lord. And if there's anyone here today who's saying, you know what, I don't know if I'm chosen. I don't know if I'm one of the elect because I haven't yet put my faith in Jesus Christ and been saved. Lord, I pray that you would show them today that they would put their faith in you and that they would find on the other side of that door that all along you have elected them. You chose them from before the foundation of the world. Lord, we thank you for this great truth that you are sovereign, you are in control. There's nothing that you're just trying to figure out as you go along. There's no conundrums for you. Lord, I pray that you would empower us by the spirit in the circumstances that we're in to do our part and be the people you've called us to be and entrust the rest to your faithful hands and your sovereign plan. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.